Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. My name is Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. About two years ago, actually two years ago next month, I had the opportunity to take the longest mission trip I had ever taken. It was 30 days. I went with one of our, te- our uh, shepherding elders, Bob Williamson, and we started off in India, then we went over to Uganda. And then on our third week, actually I was kind of thinking about coming back home after that because 20, or 30 days on a mission trip is a long trip. And, uh, but he said, I really want you to come and see this ministry. Um, before I leave any missions trip, but well, any missions trip, I, I pray and I say, Lord, I need you to do something unexpected in my life. I need you to show me why I do this. It, you know, it, it, a lot of times people say, "Oh, it must be nice to be able to do that." Well, I got to tell you, sleeping in strange beds with you know critters and and eating food that sometimes makes me a little uncomfortable or whatever. You know, it was fun for the first twenty years or so, but I'm I'm past that now. But I know how important it is for me to go on missions trips. The Lord does something in my life every time I go. Reminds me of the joy that is the goodness of God, like we just sang of, the privileges we have. And so I say, Lord, either let me meet somebody or hear something or experience something that I, I wouldn't notice at home, perhaps, that reminds me of, of why you want me to do these things. And so uh, I had prayed that prayer, and like I said, went to India, had a great time. Nothing big hit me. Went to Uganda, had a great time. Nothing big hit me. Uh, but then we went to South Africa, um, where Bob serves on um, a board of advisors for uh, a ministry uh, that many of you have heard of. It's affiliated with uh, Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. Bruce Wilkinson was the founder of an organization here in the United States called um, uh, Walk Through the Bible. And it was a systematic discipleship plan that that takes you through the Bible. It could take you through in one year and and so forth, and it had layers to it. Um, And he was also a prolific writer, and he wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that book, just whatever reason, it hit a chord, and it just went viral. I mean, whatever, they bestseller. And uh, because of that, because of the American system or whatever, he suddenly had this huge influx of cash that came in because of the book as well as it sold. So rather than use it to enrich himself, what he did was he, uh, he bought, uh, he, he, he had a vision for reaching the country or the na- nation, I'm sorry, the nations of Africa, the continent of Africa. Um, Africa, sometimes we look at it, it's way on the other side of the globe, you know, it's, it's different than us and, and so forth. Uh, Africa is three times the size of the United States in land mass. I mean, you can like neatly fit the United States right in the middle of it. And, and uh, it's, it's just a huge, huge country. The northern half is mostly Muslim. The southern half, nominally Christian, largely because of colonialism, uh, introduced it. But uh, not particularly adherent and not particularly deep. And, and so... Um, he really had a passion for taking discipleship to the nations of Africa. So what he did is he bought a game park. I think it was about 1,500 acres initially. I think it's about 5,000 now. But, but he, he bought this game park, um, and it, it's beautiful. He developed it. And it has these you know, glamping tents and so forth in it. So nine months out of the year, you can go there and rent. I think that was between nine or six and $9,000. I don't remember what it was. It was a huge amount of money for a week in the game park. You can go... You can go um, you know, safariing and see the animals. They got all kinds of animals there. You know, beautiful meals. It's a wonderful place. Um, but what he does is he makes money off of those nine months, and for three months out of the year, he brings in leaders from all across Africa. 
and he trains them in discipleship. They get to experience something they would never be able to experience. Some of these people live in homes with no, ho- no, no indoor plumbing, no electricity or anything. And, and they, they come down there and he treats them really well and he trains them morning, noon, and night on discipleship. And then he equips them and then he releases them back to their country. And he'll bring in another group and, and so forth. He fills that camp up over and over and over again, three or four times a year using the prophet. So it's a self-sustaining ministry. It's really, really cool. And he's got a very, very good system and it's taking root all over Africa. So I was there. I got exposed to that. I was understanding what they're doing and so forth. And I still didn't have the contact. When a guy got up and gave his testimony and he talked about what God was using him to do after having used this discipleship material across Zimbabwe. I didn't even know where Zimbabwe was. I had to look it up, figure out where it was. And it's actually just north of South Africa. And the guy's name was Shepard. Now, if you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't naturally walk up and introduce myself to people. And so I said, I got to meet this guy. So as soon as he got done speaking, telling, me, telling us about what the Lord was doing, I ran over and said, hey, man, can I talk to you? We sat down and we talked and we shared a couple of meals together and, and, and just got to know each other. I went back the next year in September to see what God was doing in Zimbabwe. I took Andrew Shoemate with me and, and we started doing partnerships together. And, and uh, then I went again last September. I took Rick Wilson with me and a couple of other pastors and we did some even more things. And I, I want you to meet Shepard Govair this morning. Uh, and I know you're saying, well, I you going to do this and still preach. I shortened my sermon, okay? You laughed. Like I can't do that. I did it the first service. I can do it the second service. So I shortened my sermon. I think it's this important. You know when I quit talking that it's important for me, right? That I want you to meet him. So Shepard, come on up here if you would. You've heard me talk about him. Yes, we welcome him. I, I just, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am to the Lord for letting me meet this, this brother. He's become, my, he's young enough to be my son, but I just, I just love him. God's done so many cool things uh, in our times together. He's, he always just, he just blesses me every conversation we have. And we talk frequently. We talk on FaceTime all the time uh, throughout the month. So Shepard, just give him a greeting and tell him a little bit about how we have partnered a little bit thus far. Uh, good morning and uh, bring greetings from my family back home in Zimbabwe and uh Dear family in my church and the entire brothers as well, they bring greetings to you and thank you for having me here this morning. And um, I'm so glad and uh, I, was, I was telling Danny and Pastor Ben as well that I usually see you on a small screen back home, you know. So when I'm here this morning, I feel real, I feel welcomed, I so feel that, so I'm glad to be here and um, our partnership with you uh, together with uh, the leadership and the entire everyone who is here, uh, you have blessed us so much. Thank you for doing that to us, and thank you for 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 every prayer, every donor that is it had built us in the discipleship, seeing churches growing, seeing churches planted, seeing leaders being encouraged in a different way. Uh, well, uh, if I believe you have seen. The pictures of red books, uh, me driving in a nice... By the way, we have nice roads back home than you guys. If you come, I'll, I'll drive you one day when you come with Dan. I can't uh, believe you come all the way over here and lie like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we have bad roads. I'm just saying we have bad roads that we have portals. But uh, that doesn't stop us to go and tell someone about Jesus. So you have been doing this because you have been so supportive to us 
uh, getting the boxes, the books, getting much more in the rural areas where there's no electricity, where there's not running water, where there's no toilets, you know, but um, that is not a barrier, but it's an opportunity to go with the gospel of Christ. Amen. And so I want you to, I want you to kind of explain so we use the material from Teach Every Nation. That's Bruce Wilkinson's organization, Teach Every Nation. It's just a nice name. Um, but they have four books, red, blue, green, and gold, right? And they're, they're in, they have a, a video teaching with them. And so what we do is, well, what you guys do, is they'll go into a village. They'll find a leader. Sometimes they've been somebody that they've taken with them to South Africa to be trained. Sometimes shepherd trains them. Uh, sometimes they're a second generation from somebody who's already taking the course and now they know what it is. They get a little screen, it looks like a little iPad. All the teaching is loaded onto it, so they can't take it and use it for something else. It's preloaded with the teaching, and, and I'm serious, it's, it's the size of a small iPad, and everybody gathers around it in sometimes a hut, under a tree, uh, in a, in a, in a, in, you know, just whatever facility they can find, and, uh, and many times they have to even charge it up using solar because they don't have electricity in that area. And so they watch the teaching, and then they do the books together. The teacher facilitates it. They answer questions and so forth. So tell them, tell them about that process, and then tell them a little bit about the graduation, how long it takes, and a little bit about the graduation, too. Okay. Um, just to continue uh, saying on what Danny is saying is, um, we, uh, the Red Book is a yearly curriculum or different courses in the one Red Book, Blue, Green, and God. So... The Red Books basically is the foundation. It lays the foundation to, to someone. There are pastors, believe me, there are pastors back in Africa who didn't get an opportunity to go to a theological college. They were not trained, but they have a zeal and they have a passion. But uh, it's easy to plant a church in Africa. Believe me, it's easy to plant a church. But the challenge, the bigger as it is, the challenge of the church in Africa is one inch deep in discipleship and leadership. So you could see and listen, sit down and listen. You could tell this. So taking the material of the Red Book first, for example, we have the courses like Savior of the Bible. It gives you the bigger picture of the Bible, how Dr. Bruce explained it, and courses like uh, how to double your church, your business. Everyone can be a great communicator. And uh, all those courses, finding peace by forgiving yourself first and forgiving others. So these are the foundation of the fundamentals. The, the good thing about the, the, the material, it, it, it teaches you the, the heart, the, the, the hand skills, everything for you to go. So it takes a year to do this. In small, I believe in small groups personally. Because I've discovered that the more you deal with small groups, the more you get more results with that. So we have groups in all over Zimbabwe. Personally, I don't focus to those small groups, basically. I focus only to 10 or 20 men that I spend time with, uh, go through together with them, listen to them, spend time to pray together, spend time to pray together and do different things. And I spend time as well visiting them. We have 10 provinces in our country. So I make it a point that I have to spend probably two, three days in every province with the key leader. This is what we need to do, and I challenge him to do the same. That I spend time with you, spend time with other men and other people, and expand that, doing that. So at the end of the year, what we do is everyone who had finished year one, for example, the Red Book, they come together in their province. They celebrate. They graduate together. Trust me. There's someone in Africa who haven't received any educational certificate. So for him to receive that certificate of achievement, 
It's something that is a great deal to that person. So they come together, we celebrate together, and we encourage them that you have done this, go and tell someone. Go and disciple someone. I was not discipled personally. When I gave my life to Christ for almost six, seven years, no one taught me how to read the Bible. No one taught me how to pray. No one taught me how to do things. To do, just in a, in a way, no one discipled me for seven years. So it was difficult for me to grow. But when, that's why I have the heart to see discipleship in, in everyone in my country. So we bring people together. We celebrate like on the 24th of February. We have a bigger group of 240. We have finished year one and year two. They are coming together to celebrate, to graduate together, and we send them out as well for them to go and disciple others. Yep. So it's, it's so cool to see these. So my last trip there with, with Rick and uh, some of the other pastors, they, they divided us up and sent us out to participate in some of these graduations. They, they put on cap and gowns. They have a big feast. The feast, one of the feasts we were at, uh, we, we walked up and there were two cute little goats just sitting out there under a tree by the tree or by the church. And uh, we pulled up and people started coming up, started coming up. A little later, guy walked over, grabbed the goats. And next thing I know, they were hanging from the tree, getting skinned. And uh, we had them for lunch. And they were delicious, by the way. But we, we, uh, we had this big party. Everybody's coming. And they had sadza, which is a, a, a maize or corn dish. And, and we supplied that as a church. I want you to know that because this makes a statement in the community. The word of God is important. Community is important. Discipleship is important. Now, why aren't you doing it? And so the next, the next generation comes in, they see it, and they sit down. Sometimes they're not even believers, but they want to study the Bible. And they can learn the Bible uh, from there, from Genesis to Revelation. So, so that's what we're doing. So, Shepard, tell everybody how you earn your living. How you earn your living. What's your vocation? Um, yeah, uh, besides doing ministry, uh, I, I, I believe I do like what Apostle Paul did. Usually, he always do a tent making to support what he was. Me, I'm a farmer back home. I, I'm into farming. And if I'm not traveling uh, into doing all this in my schedule, I spend time in my farm. I do much more on the vegetables, the tomatoes, potatoes, onions. And I'll take this to the market. That's how I support my family. That's how I support as well my travelings. During the week, I'm in the farm. During the weekend, I, I make sure that I have to attend somewhere, somewhere where there's a church planting just to equip brothers that we need to do that. So uh, if I'm not in the church, I'm in the farm. Yeah. So, and, and I really wanted you to hear that because... Um, this is a man who was doing this before we met, and he, he had very little outside support to help him. Um, and I believe in partnerships. One of the philosophies that we have put into our, our missions team is we almost never, only rarely, and only in one or two countries, do we support people directly, financially. There's, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into it. But, but we, don't, we, we, we partner. We do projects. And we invest in people through training. Always has to have a gospel thing. However, I will tell you this. When I went over to, to uh, a Shepherd's house with Andrew one night for dinner, um, and he's got, he's got three kids of his own, and he's got another young lady that's a family member that lives with him because she doesn't have any place else to live. And right now he's got two more that are living with him. But, and and he, he understands, I'm not being offensive on this, but, but literally his entire house was smaller than this, this stage. And, and so... We, were, we would sit 
and, and, and we couldn't even all sit in the same room. So some sat in the living room, some sat in the family room, and a couple of them were in the bedroom. We couldn't eat together because the house was so small. Um, literally, they'd have to cook food, move it into another room, cook more food. I mean, it was, it was really rough. How long did you live there? 13 years. 13 years they lived as, a, as their family grew. And, and so I was just so impacted by that. Oh, and because he's a preacher and we preachers don't live by rules, he, he, be, he was always bringing somebody home with him, right? He's, he's going to stay at my house and I'm going to train him for a couple of days. And his wife was okay. His wife went back to school to become a school teacher. And so she, she did that just a couple of years ago. But at the starter level of education there, she has to teach at a boarding school. So get this. This man is mom and dad five days a week because he's take his wife on Sunday afternoons back to the school where she lives until Friday afternoon. Then he brings her back. And then she's able to be mom to her kids. And she does that nine months out of the year because she believes in what you're doing. And they just need to survive. The average Zimbabwean makes about 250 a month, 250 bucks a month, right? So, and he lives in a big city. Zimbabwe is very divided. You've got major cities, third world country cities, but they're major metropolitan areas. Then you've got the rural, and they're way different, way different. So, I mean, you've got roads and, and, and traffic and so forth in the big cities. You don't, have, you don't have electricity. You don't have water. You get lost in the potholes are so big. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's just like going back in time 200 years. His passion is for the rural. He lives in a city. He even goes outside of the city where he owns a little tiny piece of land, and that's he does his farming so that he can raise vegetables, sell them, so that he can then leave on the weekends and go out and minister. So this is the kind of sacrifice this guy's making. I am so humbled sometimes when I meet pastors and, and, and workers and so forth around the world, the sacrifices they make. And to be able to partner with them is such a tremendous blessing. So there's been several ways in which we've partnered with him. One of the things that he does is uh, t- tell, him, tell him about what you do to get people to go down to uh, uh, South Africa with you. Um, at the campus, we, 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 it's, a, it's a place where we take pastors, leaders, these untrained pastors, leaders of a person to go, uh, for, to go there to train them, to relax, to expose them to the material. And um, because it's costly, we believe uh, they should put a dollar for them to go there. And that's another partnership as well that uh, you as a church that we've been doing, helping us to take those leaders there to spend a week. When they come back, uh, believe me, they will be motivated, encouraged, so refreshed, so encouraged to go, to see, to just to spread the gospel to the next person. So that's how we take them. We're by road, the teacher of nation, they have a bigger uh, luxury bus. They send it to the border, get them there, bring them back with all those boxes, and uh, that's how we check them then. Yep. So, so one of the things we do is we sponsor some of the trips because in the rural parts, the, the trip's 300 bucks. They, the, the 300 bucks is a month's wage or more for them. They, they can't afford that. But we think they need to have skin in the game. So uh, Shep and I worked it out. They got to bring chicken, a couple chickens. They got to bring a bag of corn. They got to bring something. And then, then we can take it and we can give it to a pastor who's in need or whatever, because uh, what are we going to do with chickens, right? But the, but the reality is they make an investment as they're able. But we as Americans, who don't think much about spending 200 bucks, 300 bucks, we can invest with them, make sure they get to go. So we've bought thousands and thousands of copies of the book. The book is $10. Uh, so we buy them uh, and, and they distribute them. Um, because, again, they get a chicken, they get a book, or whatever, but they don't have 10 bucks to be able to give the book. So we do these things in partnership with Shepard and his, his group. Um, as, I, as I was saying, when I was over there the first time, living in this little house, I, I was just so, so heartbroken and, and, and knowing 
how much his family had sacrificed. I, I came back and, I, and our missions team approved. We sent $200 a month to Shepherd so he could get a little better house and a little more space. And, and so he was able to move out of that one. And he's actually living, this is sad but real, he's living in what was a servant's quarters of a colonial-style house where the white people used to live. And he's living in the servant's quarters, like a mother-in-law apartment. And uh, they're all still jammed into just a couple of bedrooms. And it's, but it's a little bigger. It's a little better. But when I was, when I was there in, in um, September and Rick and I were there, uh, we were talking about how he, he, he really has this passion for bringing people in and training them and so forth. And I said, dude, isn't there a little better place that you can have a little more space? Let's, what, what is it going to take? So he found a house that was being built by a South African lady who decided she didn't want to move to Zimbabwe. So she got this house about half finished and, and then doesn't want it. And so she's just selling it for what she's put into it. And it's in, it's in a neighborhood, which is kind of rare, but because of where he lives, they have a few of those. And, and, uh, and it has about 12 to 1400 square feet. And it has what they would have designed as a garage that Shepard wants to use to be kind of a place where they can train, they can bring people in, they can put some bunks in there if they need to spend overnight. So he's got a little place for his family. And he's got a place for training. And so we said, how much do you want for it? And, and I don't remember what the original price is. We got her down to $60,000. I don't have $60,000. I was negotiating for fun. And uh, <laughs> so I jumped on the phone, talked to a few people. We, we made some deals, negotiated. When I got back home, we found $30,000 and, and we made a deal with her. We kept going back and forth. $30,000 down and $30,000 in six months. Well, six months ends in March. All right. And, uh, and, and so I, by faith, and I'm not, you know, this is not something I do a lot, but by faith, we paid the 30000 down, and we're going to pay this remaining 30000 one way or another. Uh, um, so that's one of the reasons he's here, and that's why in February we've made this, this month um, the emphasis for that. So I need to raise $30,000 in the next 30 days so that we can get this. Now, he's going to do the other stuff. He's going to put the windows in. He's going to put the floors down, ceiling in, take care of the walls. And, and so forth. But we're, we're, giving, we're giving him a hand. We're giving him help. And if we have managed to get more than 30000 we'll use it. He's going to need a refrigerator and stove and all that kind of stuff. But we need to get the house so we don't lose the house uh, because we have this, this contract. So that's why he's here. He's going to be in the lobby. I'd love for you to go out and tell him. Everything you give to missions uh, for the monthly missions emphasis during February goes to, goes to him. He's at a lot of your life groups. I've got this man so busy. We're in like five youth groups, uh, five, five uh, small groups. We're going to be at the youth group. He's going to leave here right now, and he's going to, Rick is going to take him over. He's going to speak at Communion DeVita, and then he's going to uh, Nashville, and he's going to Cleveland, where I have some friends up there, and he's going to talk to them. So will you pray for him, and would you write a check or give something and this month? If there's any month to give, this is the month, and I can't wait till he comes back and shows us more of what he does. God has got his hand on this man. I am so honored to be his partner in ministry and his friend. You're his partner in ministry too. I want you to be his friend. I want you to meet him. You love this guy. He'll change your life. Thank you, Shepard. Love you, man. All right. All right, just, yeah, you just going back and Rick's back there. He'll, he'll get you. So Rick was a missionary in Venezuela. So Rick's going to do double duty. He's going to translate from... Uh, Zimbabwe English, whatever, whatever, uh, you know, into, into Spanish. <laughs> Say what? Yeah. You're going to have to do some, well, you can do some of it. He speaks Spanglish. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he was a missionary in Venezuela, and then uh, he just got back from Myanmar and had work in uh, Africa and also uh, 
Kenya, great works there. So, and he's part of our missions team. So we've got some things going on behind the scenes I wish you all could know about. It would take us a month of Sundays all day long to be able to tell you about what the Lord is doing. And, you know, we don't talk about money a lot because you don't want to be that church where, hey, every time I go there, they're talking about money. I just want you to know when you give, we take it seriously. We look for investments. We have rules. We just finished our audit, you know, great audit, no issues at all. Uh, uh, you know, just like put this number here or that, but I mean, no, nothing that would disturb anybody at all. Uh, we, we take what you invest seriously because we want you to know that, that we want to spend your money like God's money, uh, or God's money like our money, only better. Um, so when you give to missions, our team looks over, we pray over it. We, we're very, very careful. So these guys that you're, you're meeting, these ladies that you meet when we bring them in, we don't bring a lot in, but when we do, it's going to matter. Cannot wait for May 4th, which is our first, or is it 5th, 4th or 5th, our mission Sunday this year. we got some things that are going to happen that are going to just knock your socks off. i, I got to tell you, uh, money that we invest in missions has such an inter- eternal impact. Um, I think you'll just really, really be encouraged. We're in Ruth, chapter 1, first five verses. And I cannot believe Ben gave me these first five verses. Um, you know, he gave the overview last week. That was fun. Beautiful scripture being read, everything. I'm the overview, seeing the sovereign hand of God, all that. He gets, the, he gets And he gives me where everybody dies. That's what I get stuck with. And then, because we've got a guest, I have less than 30 minutes. And everybody, they're literally taking bets in the back room about whether or not I can get this done. My sermon's the same length. I'm just going to talk twice as fast. We will get through it, I promise you, and I will get you out on time. But I want to take a look. You say, well, why do we do it this way? Because we believe every verse is important. Every verse is important from God. Every passage. We want to see God's hand in it. So when we do expositional and exegetical are two different things. Exegetical is more teaching professorial. Expositional is what is the theme? What is the context? What's going on? What's the background? And, and then working through it systematically in, in this way. It's, it's similar, but it's different. But when, we, when we're going through the book of Ruth expositionally, this is a story that's being woven. And you know, in any story, there's good parts and there's bad parts. There's easy parts and there's uncomfortable parts. That's the story of our life. And that's the story of Ruth's life as well. And the passage that we already had read this morning is the story of a time in the nation of Israel, but it also involves people that are, that are very, very human, that are very, very broken. And may I be so bold as to say this? People like us. I mean, people think that when you're coming to church, you've got a bunch of perfect people who haven't been to church much because we're not. We're messy. We're, we're messy. We've got, we've got problems. There, there's debt. And there's cancer, and there's divorce, and there's conflict, and there's health issues, and there's, and there's addictions. These things are, these are the results of living in a difficult world. And I think every once in a while, we need to be responsible about our own condition and lift the mask off and say, I'm a mess too. I don't always make great decisions. I get caught up in the moment. I'm, I do things emotionally that, I, that, that, that aren't, that aren't right. I ignore the facts of God for the feelings that are well up in my heart that I don't know how to handle or, or deal with. And, and so as we are studying this passage, I, I want you to know, it's not, I, you know, later on in the, uh, on, in the study, by the time we get in April and May, it's fun stuff. And, and we're going to tell you, uh, you know, the cool things, of the kinsman redeemer, redeemer and the redemption. But today we start off and it's a bleak time. 
So the scripture begins by saying, in the day when, days when the judges ruled. You understand the nation of Israel was just forming. Civilization here was just occurring. The organization was just happening and it was a mess. And the people, the Bible says in one part, when speaking of the of children of Israel at this time, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And what does that mean? It was chaos. It was chaos. And, and you had some people who were devout and some people who had no interest in living uh, by any biblical standard or any God standard or any standard at all. They were just doing what they wanted to do. There was violence and corruption. There was immorality and promiscuity. There were wars and attacks and stealing and plundering, rape and pillaging and all kinds of nasty stuff. And, 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 and God would raise up these prophetic judges that would say, hey, don't you remember that you are special people? God's people, and that there's ways you should be, go back and look at the Talmud, go back and look, 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 look at the Pentateuch, go look and, and, and see this is what you're supposed to be doing. You should aspire, aspire to holiness and, and Christ, or God-likeness. You should aspire to these things, and the people are like, nah, nah, oh no, that's theoretical, that, that, that's idealistic, that's, that's not for us. And God would raise up judges, and the judges would say, look, thus saith the Lord. This is what you bring on yourself. These are the consequences of the stupid decisions you're making. This is because you've turned your heart away from God. And so we have this series of judges that we see throughout the Old Testament. And even in the midst of this, God periodically would, would, would slap their hands. He'd give them a rap across the knuckles. He would put them in bondage, put them in slavery, make them lose a the war. He would do things to say, pay attention, I matter. Truth matters. You got to pay attention to the, the things that, that I am doing in your midst that, of which you are not even yet aware. And, and, and people just kept kind of going nuts. So there was this time during this period in Israeli, or, or, or Israel's history that you know, the judges were popping up here and there and so forth. And we're going to see this little insight, this little story, this little spotlight into what's going on. And so scripture says, there was this city of Bethlehem. Now we all know Bethlehem birthplace of Jesus, right? Bethlehem, by the way, means house of bread. So when you hear house of bread, you're thinking, wow, plenty to eat, storehouses, you know, if you got bread, you're good. We pray for bread, right? So this, this is good, except there was no bread because there was a famine. And anytime people cannot get their daily provisions, they get restless. You want to see where the revolutions are occurring around the world? Look for nations that are experiencing famine because famine creates panic. Why? Because we all need food, but beyond that, we want our kids to have food. We want our family to be cared for. It is written in the heart of every parent that you be able to take good care of your kids. And at this time in, nation, in the history of Israel, it wasn't happening. Elimelech, who, by, if you look at some of the writings of the Talmud, uh, there's some indication that he was a very prosperous man at some point, uh, that he may have even not been a particularly ideally ethical man at time. Again, Talmud, sometimes you can accept in some of its tradition and, and hearsay. But, but Elimelech finally said, I've had enough. I got to go, got to leave. So he takes Naomi, his wife, and he takes his two sons, Malan and Chilion, and he says, we're out. And he said, pack up what you can. We're leaving everything behind. We're going to start over. We're going to Moab. Moab's about 50 miles as the crow flies from where they were living. But it was completely different. It had, it had rivers. It had, it had places. And plus, it had a stable government. And, and, and in that area, it was, it was just a little safer place, a better place to raise your family. And, you know, almost everybody in this room, not everybody, but a lot of you, we're here from somewhere else. You know, you know I'm, I'm here from, from South Florida, uh, where, I, where I last lived. I got to tell you, I love this place a whole lot more in South Florida. South Florida is 
It's a little chaos, all right? Some of you from New York, you love our taxes. You, 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 love, you love a lot of things. Unfortunately, you keep voting like you were up in New York, and before long, we're going to have a higher taxes. But, but anyway, you, you, know, you come down here. Um, you know, I meet folks all the time. And that wasn't meant to be political. I hope you don't take it as that. Well, maybe a little. But anyway, um, a lot of you from the West Coast. Yeah, I, I met a couple, uh, and they may be in here. I don't know whether they were here first service or second service. I think they moved here from Oregon, if I remember correctly. Oh, Seattle, Seattle. Uh, we have a lot of folks here moving from California. And, and, and you're coming, you know, all across the country. Why? Because in, in some cases, job opportunities, lower taxes, um, easier to raise a family. I mean, there's different things that motivate you. That's the history of mankind. We just want what's best for our family. And that's what Elimelech was doing with Naomi. He said, you know, we got these boys. They're probably in their teens at this point. He said, let's, let's get out. Let's get out. Let's, let's get a fresh start. We're hungry. We're tired. We're burned out. Let's go. And so they go to Moab. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of Moab in just a, a moment. But the bottom line is they go there, and next thing you know, Elimelech catches something and dies. He's out. So now you got Naomi, and she's got two boys. And there they are on their own. There's nothing to go back to. They've left it all behind. Now they don't even have the patriarch of the family to help take care of them. The boys end up falling in love, and they marry two Moabite girls. Now this is a problem. Jason referred to it a little bit because God wanted, because of what he was doing in Israel, he was bringing the Messiah, he specifically wanted Israelites to marry Israelites. And so when they married Moabites, that was kind of outside of the figure, outside of the plan, outside of the picture. And so this was a bit problematic. And so they get married. And it's interesting, the Bible says they were there for 10 years. Now, in Bible days, you have to remember this. Once you got married, you usually started having kids pretty quick. All right? I wasn't playing Parenthood and all that stuff around at that point. This was, they would start having nothing. They were in a period of barrenness in every sense of their life. They were spiritually barren. They were emotionally barren. Their family, you know, they lost their dad. They were, they were, they, they were, they were physically barren. They were in the middle of a famine. They were getting started all Every part of their life felt like it was collapsing. And, and so why had they moved? What, what, what was going on? Why were they in this state? And, and, and so Malon and Chilion end up dying. And now you got three widow ladies sitting there in a foreign land. You got the mom, Naomi. She's not Moabite. She's not of Moab descendancy. Then you got their two daughters. They're scared. So they're kind of clinging to her. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you do, I'm going to do. And, and, and they're confused. And, and, and she's like, I don't want to be responsible for me, let alone me and you too. I don't know what to do. And can you just get a sense of the desperation? in her life at that moment. And so you've, you've got Ruth and Orpah, which is interesting. By the way, everybody knows Oprah Winfrey. Oprah was supposed to be Orpah, and they made a mistake when they put it on the birth certificate. We don't name our daughters Orpah or Oprah anymore, right? You know, these, these, are, these, are, for, these are forgotten people to some extent. But what was God doing? What is going on? And that's where I kind of want to focus because... The fact is this, you and I are going to face dry periods in our life. You're going to face difficult times. You're going to get bad news. Something's going to be a sign to you that you're going to have to endure. And we can talk about wanting a carefree life, but the bottom line is we can run from trouble, but we can't hide from it. Trouble is as the sparks fly upward, is what the scripture says. There is, there, the, you and I are going to go through some time in our life when it's difficult. And how we deal with that 
is part of God's story of victory for our life if we'll do it wisely. Now, we're not jumping ahead. Everything Emily wants to jump ahead and tell you the, the, how the story ends, but we need to get there systematically. But what I'm asking you today is, are you in a famine right now? Are you in a physical famine, a financial famine, emotional famine, a spiritual famine? Are you at this point in your life wondering, God, what in the world is going on? How did I get, I thought I was moving to a better place. I thought I had the best life in front of me. I thought, yeah, I read the book, The Best Life Now, and that's not true. This stinks. Or you say, you know, I thought I did the right things and the results are not what I had envisioned they would be. How do I get through this? How do I survive this? Where are you, God? And what are you doing? Because that had to have been the posture of Naomi and Orpah and Ruth during this moment. They were alone. They were vulnerable. They were confused. They were hurting. They had thought even for at least, Naomi had thought for a moment, at least I can get a fresh start. For the girls, at least I have a husband who will help care for me. And now they're widowed in a foreign land. What can we learn from a hard time? You know, and this, and I, I really want to emphasize this because, you know, we're Americans. And we Americans like to whine. We, we really do. That's one of the reasons I love to go on mission trips because it resets my wine, wine-a-meter. Uh, you know, the things that I whine about routinely here, then I go to mission field and I come back and I'm like, well, Dan, you're just pathetic is what you are. But, but, but the reality is we do. We, we, we whine a lot. You know, and this is not political, please understand this, but it's a political observation. Um, it, we're, we're in election year. Every time I read it is, this election is the most important election in the history of elections. The future of democracy is at stake. And obviously the media thinks we're idiots because they've been telling us that every four years for as long as I've been alive. If this election doesn't go this way, then... We're doomed as a nation. Chaos will break out. War will be everywhere. Now, by the way, I think elections are important. I urge you to vote, so forth. Um, and and I, I, I'm not saying withdraw from the political process. But by the way, if our democracy is only one election strong, then it's not strong enough to survive long term anyway. You know, we've got checks and balances. We've got a system of government. And yeah, we have trends. And, and frankly, from most everybody's perspective, the trends are in the negative. But we always talk about, yeah, we need another president like back in the good old days. Well, I'm old enough to remember the good old days, okay? I've seen every president since Kennedy who got shot in the head and did the Bay of Pigs. Oh, well, what about Johnson? Vietnam War. What about Nixon? Watergate. Well, what about Carter? Worst recession in my lifetime. What about Reagan? Second worst recession in my lifetime, all right? Well, what about, what about, uh, what about uh, uh, Bush? He raised the taxes and got booted out of office. Clinton, Monica Lewinsky. I mean, do you want to keep going? <laughs> do you really want to keep going? I'm just telling you this. If your hope is in who wins the next election, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to be great. Our hope isn't here. And I just want to say this, and, I, and you know, I'm a, I, I love America. I'm a flag waver. I'm, you know, I know all the patriotic songs and whatever. But I'm a Christian first. I'm a follower of God first. I'm grateful. I am grateful to have been born in this country of, of, of just amazing opportunity. I invite people to come here. But I got to tell you, Jesus does not love me because I'm an American more than he loves Shepherd Govert because he's Zimbabwean. He loves him every bit as much. And I got to tell you, when we get to heaven, 
You're not going to see Dan Burrell in the line until you see a whole lot of shepherd Govers ahead of him. And, and the reality is, sometimes we just need to shake ourselves and say, pay attention, Dan. Quit being a snowflake. We live, we live in a tough world. It's fallen. It's broken. We're hurting. You're going to suffer. Not everything's going to go your way. But God is still faithful. God is still good. He's still running after me. And we can believe in that. And in that, we survive the bad times. But sometimes we got to put our arms around each other and say, hey, let's review the facts here. Let's remember some things. So what can we learn from hard times? Number one, we live under the constant threat of hard times. We live under the constant threat of hard times. This notion that somehow we should be exempt from difficulties is not consistent with the word of God. It's just not. We know that we fight a spiritual battle and that Satan would like nothing more than to discourage you and to make you quit or to make you curse God. That's his agenda. But we also know that what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. And if you believe that, it'll change how you respond to adversity in your life. We're going to experience it because we live in a broken world. There is a sin curse that's on us. We're dying. The Bible says that the earth groans under the curse of sin. We are going to have trouble because we have a sin nature. Not only is it on the planet, but it's in our hearts. How many times have I looked in the face of opportunity and chosen unbiblically and reaped the consequences for that? How many times do I listen to the voice of temptation when I should be standing on the truth of what I know to be true about God? What's going on here? I've got a sin nature. Not proud of it. Don't like it. Certainly don't want to feed it. But I wrestle with it every single day. And I'm so grateful for God's grace that spills out and picks me up every time I do something stupid and say, okay, let's try it again, Dan. Let's do it again. And by the way, ought that not be our posture? Ought that not be our posture in this family? Because sometimes we're the person that needs grace and sometimes we're the person who needs to give grace. But one thing's for sure, we need grace every single day. And that's God's, that, that, that's God's gift to us in the midst of our sin nature in the midst of a broken world. The third thing is we're all going to make some stupid choices. We're going to make some stupid choices. You know, I, 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 so many times I talk to people. I've had a conversation this morning, but, but somebody will say, yeah, there's a period in my life where I just walked away from the Lord. I was in college and I was doing stuff. You know, I was a teenager and I was a jerk. Or, you know, right after I got married, I was just not a good person. There's, there's these dark periods in our life. You look back on it and you say, man, did I make some stupid choices? I made some dumb mistakes. I didn't need to do that. What was wrong with me? What was I thinking? And in the midst of that, God will give you victory if you'll repent. And he'll make fewer of those if you'll obey him. But we have to understand, we every day, every day, need to examine the choices we make in the life of the unchanging eternal word of God. Sometimes we just simply rebel against God's authority, where the Bible calls us a stiff-necked and a hard-hearted people at times. And we are. I'm telling you what. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm not doing that. You can't make me. And we get this, this toward God's authority. I know what the Bible says, but I know what, they, I, I know what God has, uh, has told me to do, or I, I know what he wants me to do, but... And we anesthetize ourselves in our rebellion because we think that getting what we want is more important than doing what God asks us to do. 
And so we have consequences. We're going to have a dark period in our life. We're going to experience a famine. <clears throat> Sometimes we're the victim of other people's sins. And I want you to take this seriously. There are people in this room right now who have scars and brokenness because of sins that other people committed around you that spilled out on you. And, and I want you to know God notices we care. If you were physically abused in your marriage, if you were sexually assaulted, if you were fired unjustly, if you got cancer or some horrific disease with which you're struggling, if you lost your parents young, if you can't have children, if you got overlooked in school and nobody paid attention to you and you were bullied, if you have wrestled with addictions because of a parent or a loved one who just is weak in that area, and you didn't, but they did, but you paid the price, I want you to understand something. There's hope for you in the gospel. There's hope for you in Christ. And that in no way discounts the pain you have suffered. But let's not let the pain, the injustice of it all, cause you to continue without hope. There is hope even in that, that God can raise you up and give you purpose and meaning and direction and opportunities unlike any you've had. We're being reshaped and remolded by God, and sometimes hard times does that to us. I look back on my life, and there were times when I'm telling you what, everything I touched turned to gold. It was wonderful. I was the boy wonder or whatever. And I don't remember learning much during that time because I was kind of coasting on accomplishments and skills. You want to know when I learned about what I'm really made out of? <laughs> when I really messed it up. When somebody stabbed me in the back. When I got fired one time without cause, whenever the economy went nuts and I lost my house and I look back, I would never want to go through that nonsense again. Never, ever. But I got to tell you this, I'm sure grateful for what God taught me during those moments. I would never wish cancer on any of you. I would never wish a suicide in your life. I would never wish unemployment, or your house burning down, or any of the other tragedies that are common in a broken world. But you know what I aspire for me and for you? That when those times come, we come out refined, reshaped, re-encouraged, and recommitted to the things that do matter beyond this life. And that's where we can be. We're being prepared for something bigger. Often God tests us so that we know that he is faithful and trustworthy and we can continue and that God has his hand on us. Sometimes we're given the opportunity to glorify God through our suffering. Let me say this to you. This is a hard one. And I don't even understand it fully. But do you know that sometimes God requires that we suffer for something that we don't even understand during this lifetime? That there's something bigger going on. I think of the story of Job. <clears throat> And I think of Job in that, that, that one picture in, in my mind of Job where he's, he's, you know, Job is a wealthy man. He's powerful. He's got 10 kids. He's got all this good stuff going on. And all of a sudden, Satan is, is, is tempting God. And there's something going on. I don't even understand how this happens. I've studied it. And, and I don't understand this conversation, this dialogue that's going on. But God says, yeah, you, you, you think he's not faithful, but I'll tell you, he is faithful. You can do whatever you want to and just don't kill him. 
Don't touch his body. So the next thing you know, he loses his kids, he loses his wealth, he loses his house, he loses his livestock, he loses his servants, he loses everything. And he doesn't, he doesn't even turn against God. And so Satan says to God, well, I'll tell you why. It's because you never let me touch him. Just stuff. God says, okay, you can touch him, just don't kill him. So he goes back. Next thing you know, Job's got, from head to toe, boils. Have you ever had a boil? I have. Your whole body reflects on the boil. He didn't have a boil. He had boils from the top of his head to the bottom. See, I can't imagine. So we've got this picture that we see in Scripture of him sitting on the stoop of his broken down house. His kids are dead. His servants are gone. His smell of his livestock that has died in the fields or was taken away by, by marauders is still thick in the air. He's got boils from head to feet. He picks up a piece of broken pottery that's from the shell of a house he once had. And to find a little relief from the oozy, pussy, scabby mess that is his body, he grabs this and he's like, kind of like scratching off, like you pick out a scab. He's using that. I mean, this is a pretty picture, isn't it? Here he is sitting there and he heals somebody coming up behind him and it's his wife. Ah, oh, sweetheart. My sweetheart. She stuck with me through thick and thin. How good to see you, my dear. And she puts her hands on her hips and she looks down at Job and she said, Job, 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 Job. Seriously, man. How long are you going to put up with this? Why don't you just curse God and die? Just throw in the towel. Give it up. Even his wife said, it's too much to bear. Just be done with it. And I see this mental picture of Job. Shoulders slumped. Feet in the ashes. Potter in his hand. The sound of clay shards scraping on scabs. Honey, you know, I was naked when I got here. I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord's given me some great things. The Lord's taken it all away. But hear me well. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Is that not powerful? What is it that Satan has convinced you is sufficient to get you to curse God? Uh-oh. Passing over, got passed over for a promotion? Don't have enough money to retire on time? Somebody get mad at you and got snitty with you at church and treated you a little unfairly? Your neighbor rude to you? Your wife didn't treat you the way you thought you should be treated? Your husband is a little snippy with you? Your kids? They're at that stage. What does it get you to, what, what, what would it take? Cancer diagnosis? Loss of a child? Mother who died too young? What's the cost of your curse? And I just want you to understand something. There are many times we can rationalize giving up. But trouble comes to all of us. And we've got to be prepared for it. It's the world in which we live. Second thing, it is easy to rationalize poor decisions when times are rough. 
And we ought to offer great caution, exercise great caution when we're going through difficult times because, you know, pain and anger and frustration and bitterness and exhaustion and fear, desperation are all ingredients that can be used to prepare a cocktail of disaster. And I want you to know those are real feelings. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you. It hurts. It stinks. But God is true. And if he's not good for the worst of times, then he's not good at all. And we have to endure. Scripture says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Elimelech was desperate. His wife was afraid. The market was almost empty. His boys complained that they were hungry all the time. He had no way to make a living. The walls appeared to be closing in and what he needed was a fresh start. And he goes and takes his fresh start and dies. Was it the right decision? I don't know. Should he have stayed? I don't know. I do know this. It didn't work out the way he thought it was going to work out, did it? And you know, we rationalize poor decisions during times of crisis all the time. I've seen people lose hope and consider suicide because of chronic pain. That's deep pain. I've held their hand as they cried. I've watched people quit church because of an embarrassment or a disagreement, or they committed a sin and people found out and they just couldn't go through it, the humiliation. So they didn't suck it up. They walked away. I've known people to divorce rather than to fight for reconciliation, to offer forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness. I've seen teens turn to drugs or alcohol or promiscuity because they felt hopeless or forgotten or out of, out of sight or abnormal or depressed or confused. And they thought, well, I can find an escape somewhere else because everybody in their friend group seemed to be getting lots of clicks, likes, and follows. I must be weird. They lose themselves in video gaming and pot and alcohol. TikTok. Watch people uproot their families and leave their church and abandon commitments in order to pursue money or prestige or one more step on a corporate ladder. And they gave it up because of a poor decision. In our weariness and our despair and our confusion, too many times we seek and listen to our own counsel and follow our feelings without seeking first and most the wisdom from something that is never influenced by our emotions or our circumstances. And that's the word of God and the spirit of God. That's why we have it hanging on our wall. That prayer, God, let us hear from you today through your word and through your spirit. Not through our feelings and through emotional circumstances, but through your word and through your spirit. Third thing, poor decisions can have lasting consequences well beyond our own experience. It is really interesting to note the similarity here between Elimelech's family and the story of his daughter-in-law's ancestry. Real quickly, let me give you this, this story, okay? So Elimelech was a Jew from Abraham. His sons were Jews through Elimelech, through Abraham. On this side, we have the daughters of Moab, Orpah and Ruth, who would marry his sons. But when you go back up their family lineage, let's go back up to the top where there was Abraham. Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot. 
Lot was wealthy, he was wealthy. They couldn't get along. Their herdsmen were fighting each other. There was a civil war going to break out between their two tribes. And so Abraham finally said, I tell you what, Lot, we got to go two different directions, but I'm going to be magnanimous here. I'll just let you pick which way you want to go. He said, now let me just tell you, this is the smart way. The grass isn't as good. There isn't as much water or whatever, but the culture is far better for you and your family and your tribe. Or you can go over here. Now the water's a little better. There's some streams. There's better grazing and so forth. But right in the middle of this land over here are two very, very bad cities. They're awful, evil places. And they'll suck you like a magnet if you're not really careful. They're called Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says that Lot chose the well-watered plains of Sodom. That area there that was going to be easier. It's going to be an easier life for him. He chose foolishly. Now, remember what I'm saying here. What, what happens sometimes is our poor decisions have long-term consequences, and you're getting ready to see that. So the Bible says that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. So not only did he choose them, he literally opened the doors of his tent so he could see down in the valley and see the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the decadence. He could hear the music, see the bright lights. But we find a few chapters later that not only did he have his view of them, he moved in there. He moved to Sodom. So he dwelt among them. But that's not the end of the story. A few more chapters later, we find that he was sitting in the gates of the city. Now that expression means he was a councilman. He was an elder of the city. He helped determine the taxes for their commerce. He helped settle disputes. He was like a judge, but he was a man of standing in that city. In other words, he integrated into the culture and into the society. He made friends and fellowshiped with them. And God finally sent him word and he said, I've had enough of the wickedness of this city. I'm going to destroy it. But Lot, because of who you are and who your uncle is and your lineage, I'm going to get you out. You got to leave and Lot's like, no, 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 I don't want to go. If you'll have 50 people here, will, will it be okay? Will you spare? I'll find 50 righteous people and you'll spare the city, right? And God said, yeah, couldn't find 50. Well, what about 10? Couldn't find 10. What about five? Couldn't find five. Lot and his wife and his two daughters finally, and there's a whole long story on there, I'm leaving out big parts, ended up having to leave the city because God said, tonight I'm going to destroy it. You guys want to be rescued? You got to get out now. Don't even look back. He runs out with his two daughters and with his wife. His wife, so in love with what she was leaving behind, looks back, turns into a pillar of sight. So now it's just Lot and his two daughters. They escape into the mountains and in the background they can hear their city, their beloved home, crash and burning under the wrath and judgment of God. You think maybe at that point he would start contemplating the stupidity of some of his decisions, but no. What does he do? He gets drunk. And while he is drunk, his two daughters lamented their virginity and their last lock of husbands and so forth. And they get this. <laughs> the Bible's not always pretty. They slept with dad. They committed incest. And they both got pregnant while their dad was toasted. And their children? Moab. Moab. And Elimelech's sons married the daughters of Moab. Bad choice by Lot. Bad choice by Elimelech. Disaster. See, sometimes we make decisions and it impacts our kids and our grandkids and down the road, we don't even know. We don't even know. Our rebellion, our disobedience, our selfishness causes us not only to harm ourselves, but to harm those we love. We have to be careful for this. Number three, or number four, the last one, the worst of times, maybe preparations for better times. 
Don't have time, not going to, give you the rest of the story. Ben will do that, and I'll do that in the future. But just remember this, where we end in verse 5 is not the end of the story. It's really good. It's really good. But sometimes things have to die to be born again. Sometimes we have to go through tough times to experience God's best. And remember that the worst of times may be preparation for you, that God wants to unload his best blessings on you or accomplish his plan through you or to give you victory in ways you've never experienced. So what does this mean for us today? Number one, don't take shortcuts when making big decisions. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do what's right, not what's easy. Number two, don't try to run away from difficulties. You can run, but you can't hide. Instead, seek God during adversity. Don't run from God. Seek God. By the way, if someone you love is near you and they're running from God, chase them. Chase them. That song we sang, running after me. C.S. Lewis called it the holy hounds of heaven in pursuit. God loves you. He'll redeem you. He'll fix you. He'll prepare you. He'll not make your life easy, but he'll make your life better. Number three, remember that you are never alone, even if you feel like you are. You are never alone, even though you feel like you are. To the widow today, you're not alone. To the teenager today, you're not alone. To the Gen Zer who's, who's, who's screwed up his life, made some bad decisions, struggling with an addiction, you're not alone. Don't let Satan lie to you. Satan always exaggerates your problems bigger than they are and diminishes the power of God to change your direction. Whatever you're going through, God is able. And then finally, remember that none of us know how the story ends yet. If you're on this side of the sod and this side of eternity, God has something that he yet wants to perform in your life, in you and through you. At this point, Naomi is like, I'm bitter, I'm dry, I'm empty, I'm done. And if the truth be told, so are some of you. You're at that moment. I've talked to you, I've heard you. Oh, by the way, and I've been there. I've been there. I know what you're saying. But joy comes in the morning. Ruth finds her Boaz. The line of Christ is kept intact. And the Redeemer lives. And he lives for you. If you say, Dan, I am at the bottom. I am hurting. I am broken. I'm running and it still finds me. Good news. Jesus loves you. And we do too. And we would love to show you what it means to be a follower of Christ. Would you let us do that? Oh, I can't tell you how much I would love to be part of that conversation. Ben, we will stop whatever we're doing and we will talk to you. You come by the office, we'll fix you coffee. You want to meet for coffee, we'll meet. You tell us the terms and we will tell you how much Jesus loves you. And I promise you, if you'll follow him, you'll get through it. You'll get through it. And you'll look back on it someday and you'll say, thank you, God, for your faithfulness during my darkest days. I promise you that. Don't walk out of here today. There'll be somebody out in the lobby with a white lanyard on. Talk to them. Come see me. Go see Shepard. He's going to be standing out in the lobby at that table. Go tell him, talk to him. Wouldn't it be really cool for you to find Jesus from a Zimbabwean this morning? He'd love to do that. Talk to Pastor Ben. Talk to one of our elders. But whatever you do, don't leave here until you know Jesus. Let's stand as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the patience of folks as we kind of dragged on a little bit this morning. But Father, your word is so precious, so encouraging. Father, help us to get a hold of it and, to, and, and, Father, to believe it in the darkest of days and the hardest of times. And thank you, Father, that even in those moments, you will be glorified. And we can look back on them like we do on Elimelech's story and Malon and Chilion. 
never knowing anything more about them other than this, they were part of your plan. And that's what we want to be, God, part of your plan. So Father, help us to live in faith in that truth. For it's in your name I pray. Amen.